You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. You know that feeling when you just record a whole spot and everything's sounding good and everything's flowing great, and then you realize that you clicked the wrong input and you weren't actually recording any of it? That's what just happened, but that doesn't make me any less enthusiastic about the sinusoid sliver. The littlest, tiniest, most itty-bitty, strongest patch cable on the market with the best warranty. Check out sinusoid.com and check out the sliver. You haven't checked out the sliver yet? I don't know what's going on. I've been talking to you about the sliver for a long time. Unless you're a first-time listener, which this might be the first time you've heard of the sliver. So check out sinusoid.com and check the sliver patch cable. It's a really, really small, very reliable patch cable that you can put your board together with, and it's the smallest soldered patch cable on the market. So check them out. Plus, if you are a first-time listener, you probably don't know they have a 100-year warranty. So anything that goes wrong in that time period, unless you are a member of the undead, you won't have to worry about your patch cables anymore. Send it in to them, they'll fix you up, and they're some of the best guys in the business. So make sure and check them out at sinusoid.com. And we would be remiss, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Gun Street Wiring Shop. Gun Street Wiring Shop is semi-local to me out of Bend, Oregon. You've heard me talk about them on previous episodes, and I really do mean everything I say about them. Sean has been amazing. He's been an amazing sponsor of the show. Recently just sent me a stamp with my face, like, in the stamp. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it's so cool. And it, I don't know. It's hard to describe. But what you care about is that they make the finest guitar wiring harnesses on the market. They got an insane attention to detail. They got great customer service. They will walk you through every step, if necessary, for installing a new harness in your guitar to get some extra functionality, some extra tone. It depends on what you need. It's all up to you. Gun Street can take care of you. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com, check out what they have to offer. If you don't see what the what you need, um, they, will, they will fix you up. Sean and company are great people, and they are heavily invested in supporting the guitar community. Just go check them out. They are fantastic. GunStreetWiringShop.com Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the ToneMob.com podcast, the show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Wylan, and with me today I have Richard Hoover of Santa Cruz Guitars. How's it going? It's a good day for this, you can be sure. All right, good deal. That's awesome. I mean, it's uh, it's never got to be a good day to be stuck inside down in Santa Cruz, though, right? You know, um, we live in such natural splendor, it's amazing. Uh, but we can get out in it at will. And uh, one of the lucky things for us is we're dealing with people that are pretty happy when they come in and even happier when they leave. <laughs> so not like a lot of jobs. That's very, very true. Um, yeah, I was actually really excited to to talk to you. I uh, got a friend of mine that has one of your guitars and he really likes it. And then um, uh, I think Carolyn, your uh, your assistant there, she 
she told me that uh, she had heard this. I posted in my Facebook group that uh, you were coming on, although I didn't specify who it was. I just said, we're going to actually talk about acoustic guitars this time because we <laughs> primarily talk electrics most of the time. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit ambidextrous, but um, uh, good. My focus is acoustic, and that's certainly what I have my expertise in. That's perfect. Um, but I got a message from a uh, industry friend, Nick Greer, who said, just cool. out of curiosity, who are you getting uh, to talk acoustic guitars on there? <laughs> and and I said, oh, Richard from Santa Cruz. And he t- sent me a picture. I just bought this Santa Cruz today. Oh, it's that's fantastic. awesome. That's awesome. So he told me to make sure that you knew that he was very, very pleased with his instrument. Give Nick my love. I think he's got excellent taste. He does. I, I think so. Too. <laughs> he's a wonderful guy. Um. But, I mean, we can just get started into the meat and potatoes here, and I'm, I'm actually really excited about this part. Um, oh, great. I'll, I'll make you a promise. I'll, uh, I'll stick to uh, physics and proven science. I won't burden you with opinions, and if I do, I'll warn you first. Okay, sounds good. I mean, you're going to kind of blow my mind if you're talking about scientific. I only, I only uh, deal in opinion over here. So, Well, good. we're a good team. <laughs> um. So let me get like your musical backstory and how did it how did it become you know where you are today with the company sure. and everything. Well, else. I'll hit some bullet points here. Um, I began to play guitar for the same reason everyone did to impress a girl, and um, uh, that uh, uh, segue went into guitar making this simply. I was uh, uh, playing guitar one day, sitting on the curb, waiting for her to come home from school, and uh, it crossed my mind that somebody made these. And if I could make a guitar, I could combine most of my interests at one time. And uh, this, this predates anything in print on guitar making, specifically steel string guitar making. Uh, But uh, luckily, my mother was a reference librarian, the Google of the day. You know, if you wanted to write a book or do an essay, you called my mom rather than go online. And she recommended we find the books necessary to put the guitar back together because that was my solution, take it apart and figure out how it worked. And uh, the the thing that was most readily available, or the only thing available really, was treatises on the violin, uh, both diaries from makers, uh, speculation about the secrets, how they work, things on wood. So that's what I ate up and studied. And the good fortune there was that, uh, of course, in the violin, they are um, uh, really – focused on bringing out the most potential sound that they can in the instrument. They're really picky about how it sounds. Uh, and they do go to a lot of pains to control that. So I began my career building the guitar, controlling the different elements of sound, just like you would on a, uh, a sound system at home. Uh, that's really different than how most steel strings are made. Most steel strings are made uh, on the premise that they're loud enough and marketing will take care of the rest. So you can, uh, uh, you know, uh, change the world if you write the right song on the cheapest guitar. And big companies really don't have to be concerned about sound. So as a single builder, um, back before there was any such thing as even the boutique market, it was tough. And I and I uh, decided that it would be a lot more effective if I worked with some other people and we could amplify, uh, you know, our ideas, we could experiment and heaven's sakes, we could build guitars faster and more efficiently. So I took on two partners in 1975 
after building on my own for some years. And that was the perfect team. And uh, some would say the uh, the real foreshadowing of the boutique guitar movement because we weren't out there to start another Martin guitar company. We were there to build custom guitars very much in the violin tradition. So uh, uh, 42 years later, uh, t- next week, uh, here we are and we stick in we stayed to that principle. Uh, we're probably 80% custom. Um, uh, of course, that's form, function, colors, but also we build to sound. And that's unusual in the market, and that's our niche. So there's a mouthful. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, like, what was the, what was the, that guitar that you first broke down and t- took apart to try to kind of understand it. It, it was, was a, it? a harmony, and, I, and I'm and i guessing it might have been like an H150 that rings a bell. It was all uh, mahogany, and uh, it was an OM size. And I remember standing in front of the, the uh, mahogany and the, uh, the spruce one and trying to decide, do you want the brown or the white one? <laughs> <laughs> but it was fortuitous because I love mahogany as a tone wood, and it's been a career goal to get mahogany the respect it deserves in the steel string market. I see, I see. So it starts. It seems like a lot of people have that story. It starts with an old, uh, <laughs> an old harmony or something. In whether they're playing yeah. it, building it, etc. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I love guitar. I love the music. I love working with my hands. And as I said, whoa, I can do everything I want at once, which is pretty much what we all want. Of course, <laughs> of course. So, um, I mean, that's me. I like guitars and talking, so this works out really we're, well. We're in our element, yeah. <laughs> um, so you you started with the harmony, and then you know the books on that were on violin making. You said, "Have you seen?" Does I know they're that they're you know similar and that they're both stringed instruments, right? But they are different. Uh, what principles from violin making did you carry over into the guitar world, or which did you find didn't apply? Um, you're right. The violin works uh, physically. It works differently than a steel string guitar uh, because it, uh, the strings pump the top uh, up and down where the uh, acoustic guitar rolls the top. And uh, But what the, the principles that are in, in common is the manipulation of mass weight uh, to change the EQ, you know, how loud bass is versus treble, and uh, and the tone, how bright or dark the instrument is. And then first, you know, fundamentally, if you want to know one of the primary secrets of Stradivarius, it was uh, unlike a factory that needs to build an instrument uh, with a formula of dimensions, um, whereby mm-hmm. you make all your parts really accurately. They fit together one way. You get to the market at a good price. The, vi- the master violin makers assembled the instrument of frequencies. So they were composing the instrument like a chord on a piano rather than the uh, top being exactly uh, you know, 4.3 millimeters. It was close to 4.3, but it was thickness until they got the right frequency. And then the rest of the components came together in harmony, and that allowed sustain and the development of overtones, which is what everybody wants in their guitar, even if they don't know how to put it into words. That's true. That's true. We're always looking for that kind of extra layer. Sure, rich, full, colorful, and it lasts a long time. Another thing we all want. (laughs) Uh huh. So, 
I didn't. I never really thought about that. What you were talking about the top. So the violin actually like pulsates right. up and down. You said, and a, a guitar. Yeah. A guitar top well, you imagine you know the, the know tailpiece holds the strings as does the uh, 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 peg head and the bridge is. I mean, the strings cross the bridge in the middle at. Uh, the strings cross the bridge in the middle, and when you pluck the string, it goes up and down. So does an arch top, but the steel string has the uh, the ball end held against the top underneath, so it pulls up, and then it crosses the saddle and pushes down. So it's that rolling motion that allows it to pump air that we perceive as sound. That's very interesting. I I didn't think I mean I mean I knew that the top vibrated, but I didn't actually think of. I kind of just imagined the whole thing just kind of shaking. I didn't think about it being sure. directional. Well, um, you'll know more than most guitar makers before we're done. This is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't know, I won't know how to be able to apply it, but uh, I'll, I'll be able to sound like halfway oh, not yeah. dumb. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So um, as far as like playability is concerned, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the violin and the guitar are vastly different in that regard. Um or at least how you physically mm-hmm. play the instrument. What uh, what were your thoughts there going into it? You know, because uh, it's 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 easy to read, you know, and apply some of the sonic elements, but sure. I imagine the playability elements you kind of had to figure out on your own. Um, or how did that? Uh, yeah, because there was a lot of uh, false assumptions about uh, how the guitar string worked, and a lot of uh, engineering had been based on that. So hold on to your seat here, and I'll explain it to you. Um, you would, uh, you know, when you pluck the string, you know, of course it doesn't move straight up and down. That would be dreamy because then if your frets were level, you just have to have it higher at the bridge than at the nut, and every time you played a fret, it would clear the next one, and life would be good. Uh, the string moves in a funny shape, and you know when you play your guitar, you're likely going to get some rattling or buzzing here and there as you play harder, and uh, even before it starts to rattle or buzz, you lose tone. So if you were in a music store and you played a nice, expensive, big American brand guitar, you have no idea how good it could sound if somebody could have taken the time to do the proper adjustments. So here's what it is. Uh, We assumed that the string would move the most in the middle if it's fixed at the nut in the saddle and you pluck it. Uh, it would move the most in the middle, and that's why the adjustable truss rod was developed to put that matching curvature in the board and allow it more room to move in the middle so it didn't rattle or buzz. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. So now, uh, get this. We would do it uh, pre- everything precisely uh, and then you play the guitar, it was fine. But the harder you play, uh, eventually you find out it's going to start buzzing on the D and G string between the third and seventh fret. And all players experience this eventually, and they go WTF, and they go into the technician. <laughs> and and we didn't really know what caused that, but the technician would mill those frets, uh, make them a little bit shorter, and the buzzes would go away. But now here's what we had is now when you press that string from the top of the fret to the board, it's since that uh, fret was milled, it's traveling a shorter distance, putting less tension on it, and the string plays flat. So you don't have any buzzing, but in that area, it plays slightly flat, and the tone is different from the other fretted positions. And if you're a discerning player, that will drive you crazy. 
So to figure out what caused this, uh, we had to see what was happening with this string. And the way we did it is we put the um, uh, we put a, a series of strobe lights and sequenced them so that they put the string in visual slow motion. And when we plucked the string, it was incredible. There was the answer. It doesn't move the most in the middle. It moves the most where you pluck it. So it's actually the last fret by the sound hole that needs the most clearance. And here was the aha moment. When you pluck it there, it echoes up around the third to the seventh fret, just like jumping on a waterbed. And that's where those buzzes were happening. So the bright idea, are you still with me or should we go on to something? No, 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 okay. I'm totally so with you. I'm, good, catch I'm, this now. If, you, yeah. With, with that, we went, oh, here's the problem. We were trying to change the shape of the frets to accommodate the string. What we need to do is change the shape of the board in the shape that the string moves. So when we put the frets in, the tops will actually be in the right place. So that's, that's what we ended up doing in like shaping the board in this, in this actual geometry that the string moves. Then when the frets go in, uh, the tops are in the right place and you can get the action probably 20% closer with that. It plays in tune because the tension is the same and the tone is consistent throughout. And it was such a crazy breakthrough uh, that the playability uh, on our guitars when we send them out is, is kind of shocking. Um, it is uh, a lot of extra work and it's not practical for anybody trying to hit a price target because it adds some time into the instrument. But if you go to uh, hot rod technicians around the world, uh, you know, uh, I, I'd start dropping names, but I'd forget somebody. They know that and they know to work the uh, uh, board uh, before the frets go in. Uh, to get that stuff. So in essence, what we're doing to get uh, a real hot rod setup is we're doing what you would do after you buy a guitar and go to a technician to get it right. And it's all physics and it's all science. And that's what's beautiful is there's no opinion to argue about when you're done. It's just right. <laughs> so what would you say, like, and it's hard to do without visual because this is just straight audio podcast, but what shape would you say the strings vibrate in if it's not straight up and down, which that makes a lot of sense. Is it, it like, an it's going to move in several, what is, what several shapes from the initial attack to when it finally decays. Uh, but if we were looking from the side of it, uh, you know, here you're in playing position, look at the side of the guitar. Um, it's going to, when you pluck it, it's going to deflect the most, um, right where you hit it and echo up, uh, on the other end, uh, again, like jumping on a waterbed. And that's the shape that the string moves. If you looked at it in cross section, it would, it, it'd make you dizzy. Uh, but using that, that geometry, um, you can come up with a way to shape the board that would work whether you fretted it at the, um, seventh fret or put a capo at the third fret or whatever. And let me uh, I'll give you the punchline here. That required so much handwork to do that people were in risk of repetitive stress injury. And we were really up against a, 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 a real uh, catch-22. To get good at it took about six months of practice. And about eight months later, it started to hurt. And that's the danger zone. But luckily, while after we developed this, we found out that the guys doing the pluck machine um, were working with the same principle. But initially, they were trying to do that to the top of the frets 
which made them play out of tune. So working together, we were able to come up with a, with a, a hot rod pleck machine that will now do this for us. And, and it's not a robot, it's a video game. So the luthier makes the decisions, and we end up with something that's just what we want and nobody gets hurt. That's awesome. So three cheers for Pleck. Yeah, no kidding. That's great. That's what I was. That's funny that you were you were saying that. I was like, I imagine that would be hard to do via a, a machine. But you just kind of answered the question right there before I even. Yeah, it. because what we what we really do is we scan the fingerboard, and then on the monitor you can. It's just like a a, a cat scan. You can see it from the side. You can see it in cross section. You can see the whole geometry, and the luthier can just do everything he do by hand, uh, in incredible detail down to a tenth of a thousandth of an inch, and then the machine will. Uh, cut the board uh, to that shape, and after the frets are in, it'll let it back, go back and kiss the top of the frets. And, and the measurements are so small, when you sight from the nut down, looking down the neck, you don't see that curve. It looks straight. Interesting. That's not That's why very, you called, but when you ask how do you do a setup. But let me give you one more thing, and I'll get off this, is the problem we had is the strings that are manufactured wouldn't work accurately enough for the for the uh, setup we wanted to get. And that's why we designed our own strings and have them made to our specifications so we can get those to work as well as we want. And so what is different about the strings? Okay, imagine imagine this. We were talking a minute ago about how the steel string works. Uh, the string pulls the top up and then pushes down on the saddle and rocks the bridge. So you have six strings uh, pulling on the bridge. And if you had those uh, at random tensions, let's say one pulled at 10 pounds, one pulled at 32 pounds, and one pulled at a pound, um, your bridge is not going to rock in unison and give you even volume. It's going to be herky-jerky. Um, it's it's not going to respond well. But if you line the strings up in, and put the tension in unison or in a logical array, it will drive the bridge um, in unison, the guitar will be louder and it feels better. Um, uh, so you, each string is, uh, uh, has a tension to it. And commercial strings are just random tensions. You buy a medium gauge uh, of this brand and a medium gauge of another brand, and the tensions are all over the place. We needed to nail those tensions to get what we wanted. So we can make the string about the same size, uh, but by uh, varying the core wire to wrap ratio, we can vary the tension of the string by about 10 pounds. So that's the benefit of this is it, it makes the guitar louder and it feels easier to play. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've talked to some other smaller, you know, string companies about this same concept, you know, like, uh, basically, you know, creating the correct tension for the, the tuning and what kind of guitar you have. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, get this too. Um, you know, when you when you're in the recording studio, let's go back to Electric Land here. You're gonna, you know, your engineer is gonna set up the EQ to give you the best presentation. Um, in our acoustic guitar building, we build an EQ for a customer, so that guitar has the proper EQ for them. And then we go out and buy a commercial set of strings, and it changes the EQ because the string tensions like a mini volume control. And by uh, organizing these strings in the proper tension, we can have a, let's call it a neutral EQ, a flat response, and then the guitar can speak in its own voice. So we're getting, you know, a little bit out there, but there's a lot of benefits to uh, designing your own string when you're making this sophisticated guitar. So, 
EQing the using the guitar as sort of the EQ for the player. Sure. Um, what what? Because I'm completely ignorant. What makes a guitar brighter or darker from a construction standpoint? Okay. Obviously, different woods sound a little different, but mm-hmm. I'm sure construction plays sure. into Let it. Let me. As well. I'll learn you this. <laughs> um, so we got you. You mentioned two things when you said bright or dark. We're talking tone. Um, uh, 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 if you play your string really close to the bridge, you get a bright strident tone. You play up over the sound hole, it's a warmer tone. Uh, the volume's the same, but you've changed the tone. So that's the definition of tone. And then EQ is mm-hmm. uh, how loud it is in bass compared to treble. So here, here's how simple it is. The woods contribute to the tone. So when you uh, build an acoustic guitar with Sitka spruce, generally that's a warmer, uh, uh, more forgiving tone than if you make it with Adirondack or European spruce is a brighter, clearer tone. Um, So for the player, uh, if you played uh, a style and you want your audience to hear every note you play and all the nuance, uh, then something like an Adirondack spruce would be a perfect choice. It's really going to be articulate. If you're like me and you don't want the audience to hear every note you play, it's better to have something that's more warmer, blended, and forgiving for like singer, songwriter, folk, something like that, and that would be Sitka. So there's no better or worse in the woods. They're like a color or a flavor for tone. So then let's go to EQ, uh, how loud the bass is versus the treble. If you're playing a bluegrass dreadnought, generally you want a big predominant bass. If you're playing uh, a jazz finger style or classical, you'd hate that. You'd want the EQ to be even, so you decide when a note is loud or soft. Does that make sense so far? Okay. That's determined by several factors. One of the most known is the shape of the bracing. When you scallop braces like a a pre-war Martin, it really predisposes the guitar to bass. So a big bluegrass dreadnought's likely to have scallop braces. If we're making a jazz or uh, uh, a guitar or something or something with uh, finger style open tunings where we want the EQ to be even, uh, we'll do a different shape brace, more like a taper. So we can get uh, a, an infinite uh, variety of EQ by how we shape the braces. So there's the there's the EQ. Also, the larger That's the airspace in the guitar, the more predisposed it is to a bass. That's why the dreadnought's bassy and the double uh, O is more even. You ask for it. <laughs> very, very interesting. Yeah, well, one of the biggest. Hey, I did. I did. This is great. It's fantastic. It's exactly what a guy like me needs. Um, well, this yeah, this is where where we get the uh, recipe for custom work for somebody. I see. Yeah, one of the things, um, one of the biggest surprises in you know my guitar playing or testing or whatever you want to call it history was I was shopping for my dad for a guitar for his birthday, and I this local music store had a 1955 uh, Martin uh, 0017. Oh, nice! And I thought that looked yeah. Yeah, I thought that looks kind of. That's cool. one of my faves. Um, well, so that's what I was gonna say. I don't know anything about the construction of it, of course, but I picked it up, played it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this this is it." But I was actually thinking it probably wouldn't. I, I, I thinking initially, I was like, "I don't think this is gonna be what he wants," because he really likes a uh, big like he like he, like his other favorite guitar is his Gibson SJ two hundred, 
Yeah, um, that's quite a difference. <laughs> it's a big difference. But I yeah. picked up that Martin and I was like, there's something in this thing. But I was kind of shocked at how bright and articulate yet loud it was for being a smaller body guitar. It is. Um, I don't know if you can sh- shed any light on I that. I will. What, what's, I will. Here's, what's the, here's the most um, uh, – uh, uh, the biggest part of that. So uh, let's go to uh, 1920. Uh, 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 Martin uh, uh, made double uh, uh, O uh, uh, K's, uh, uh, all Koa guitar, Koa top, back and sides. And a little later on, they made the 15 and the 17, which was all mahogany top, back and sides. And I mentioned that because they're very similar woods and densities. And you get to play those old guitars, and more often than not, they sound spectacular. And you go, what is going on? It's a small guitar. It's a hardwood top. How could this sound so good? So uh, Mm -hmm. then you go into your music store and you play a modern version of that, uh, of let's say just the Martin, you know, here's the same guitar. They make it today and you play it. And if you're kind, you would say it's mellow. If you were honest, you'd say, what's the matter with this guitar? It's really subdued. It doesn't have much volume. It doesn't have much sustain. And here's the difference. Back in 1920, um, they actually had some connection to Luthery and they knew on a smaller guitar they needed to scale the thickness down accordingly of the guitar top and the woods so let's say those tops would have been like uh let me just throw a number two and a half millimeters okay uh and with that you got a nice resonant Mm -hmm. top uh, worked well we come into the modern day and for and and martin makes like what about one billion times more guitars per year today than they did back then and for the sense of efficiency, <laughs> all the top woods are going to go through a machine and come up the same size, whether they're a dreadnought, a single O, or whatever, a parlor. And now that top is going to come out spec probably around 3.2 uh, millimeters are, are higher. So we've got almost um, a 100% increase in thickness on the top, and it does no favors for sound. It's just too stiff to sound good. So um, it 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 was they were made proportionally back then, uh, and today not so much. That's why it sounds so much better in those old ones. And here's the other thing: up until about 1870, guitars were really really small, and the reason is they only had to be big enough to be heard in the biggest room in the house. And and the uh, state of Luthery had advanced to the point that those guitars were exquisite sounding. I mean, seriously, about as good as you could get in the sound of a guitar. The only reason guitars got bigger is because people started playing them on stage with barking dogs and banjos, and they needed more volume. So uh, we get this dismissive thing about small guitars like their toys are not real, uh, but that's the history of it fun huh that's really interesting yeah so i love the the smaller guitars and i love koa and mahogany for tops because when treated intelligently they're spectacular yeah that that martin in particular was like one of my favorite guitars i've ever played and i was like this is and they're not they're kind of unsung heroes i mean i know that dylan played one and all this other stuff but they're not really like you know they're not super expensive Uh, that's i know they will be (laughs) 
They will be if we keep talking about them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, that's what inspired our 29, 1929 series, because Martin came out with that back in the Great Depression uh, to make a simpler guitar that, you know, would attract people to buy it in, in hard times. And we did the same thing in 2008 when the world was ending financially. And I'd just been waiting for that opportunity because I wanted to make an all, all uh, mahogany guitar. That's awesome. That's really cool. In your estimation, you, you know, you said there's there's a pretty big gap in between uh, 1929 and what would be considered, you know, modern by most standards. Yeah. In your opinion, when did that shift kind of occur? It's a, it's progressive. It's not a light switch off and on. It it and it would take parallel courses. So. Um, if you can think of it like this, kind of throw out the idea of handmade versus machine made. And let's think more in terms of making guitar to hit a price target and making a guitar to try to build the best possible guitar. And so for the people, uh, 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 for someone building a guitar uh, uh, for a player and trying to do the best possible job they're not restrained by how much they pay for wood or how much effort they put into making it sound good uh the the company that's trying to hit a price target on their hand is a slave to how much they can pay for the wood and how much they can pay somebody to manipulate it so uh, as we look at uh uh growing brands like martin or gibson uh, uh, or anybody else, as they made more and more guitars, they had to gain more efficiencies with it. Uh, and then we don't really have a model for the uh, continuous single builder like that. People came and went because of the fickleness of the market. Uh, but that's why the market was so ready uh, for us in the uh, early 70s, because uh, the large factories had really evolved to something where uh, uh, they weren't at their best. Um, but they were the names and people bought those. And for somebody to come up with truly a more sophisticated sounding guitar at that time uh, was really, really exciting. And that was our model. We didn't have a price target, partially because we didn't know to. And secondly, we had the hubris thinking we'd make the best sounding guitar possible. Is that helpful? Build it and they will come. Yeah, sort that, of. That, like. that's helpful. So there's not the 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 magic about the pre-war guitars are yes, they did use uh, oftentimes better materials. Uh, they did have a little more of intelligent a build, but there's also natural selection of uh, you know a D28 Martin from the 30s now is is like uh, six figures. Um, it's really, really expensive. But the ones that are left are the good ones, um, a Darwinism. The ones that sounded really crummy and weren't easy to play got set aside, put in a closet, run over by a car. Uh, the ones that played well, sounded good, were prized. And so today we have a really nice selection of those instruments, or a really nice selected bunch of those instruments. Right, right. The cream of the crop, sort of. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Fun stuff. Fun stuff for sure. Who, you know, we've talked a lot about Martin and Gibson, and of course you got your guitars too, but yeah. like who are some maybe under the radar people that you would consider like doing really good work from from any era? Just some people that don't get enough love in your opinion, um, builders. Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's, you know, to do a guitar right is pretty expensive. And there's, um, I, I will give you some names that will answer your question, but if I may, uh, let me give you just a, a little bit of a background here. 
Um, it's another secret of uh, Stradivarius, and I don't mean that uh, hubris. This is physically what they did. Um, in the in the uh, modern way of building guitars efficiently, um, whether you're making refrigerators, couches, bicycles, whatever, uh, to mass produce, you would uh, have a have a, a a design that would dictate the size of each component, and you'd make these components accurately sized. So you'd have assembly stations where one a piece would only fit one way and the guy's job is to fit this piece into a framework put glue on it and pass it on and you can save a lot of money so let's call that a formula of dimensions you make things all the same size they go together quickly and you do it that's how any big company makes guitars at a low price um, uh, it's also true of some boutique builders and some individuals that do that too here's the fallacy is the uh, uh, the violin masters um, didn't make things to exact sizes. They made them to exact frequencies and they were making a, an assembly that was like making a chord on a piano with the instrument. When the string energy put it into motion, it sustained and developed overtones and sounded good. So they worked their pieces to frequencies, not exact sizes. Do you follow the difference? Okay. So today, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anybody that's taking the time to do that can come up with a good one uh, all the time. Uh, the factory, since they're doing precise pieces, the frequencies are random. And like throwing rocks at a piano, every once in a while you might get a chord. Most of the time you get something that's not quite as sustaining and full as you want. And that explains the variation in factory guitars. So the people out there, there's very precious few people that discovered this on their own, and be, but unless they went through violin building. Um, but in, um, in large builders... Um, there's people that went through our shop. I mean, no shameless boast on that. Uh, several uh, individual builders out there that are really shining stars uh, that learned here and learned that technique. And in the in the boutique uh, business, I'm going to say Dana Bourgeois is probably the guy that gets it the most uh, and understands those principles and builds his guitars that way. Thank God he has a difference of opinion about almost everything else than us. So there's a nice difference in the marketplace in that but you know some of the people that are out there now building on their own um uh jeff traugott uh, uh mark maingard uh markian vermeer um uh, there's a few other in the u.s and, and a couple of international ones that are people that have learned that process through us also we're open source you know i tell these secrets of violin builders on the internet so if people want to follow through on that and take the time they can do it uh, the damnable part is it's not efficient and it makes the guitar really expensive. Right, right. That makes sense. It does. Yeah, because you'll find you'll find some people in the $20,000 range that truly build the same way that Taylor does by uh, this dimension of formulas, but they have really good workmanship and really nice um, uh, uh, choices of wood. And not to dis dismiss them, the guitars are loud, but uh, this complexity we're talking about, that's, that's Luthery. I see. I see. I, 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 got, I got way deeper than I wanted there. I'm so sorry. Uh, I, should, I shouldn't have mentioned any names at all. I love Taylor, by the way. We've been friends uh, since the very beginning. We share a lot of information. That's really cool. No, no, that's this is all good stuff. This is all good stuff. No, no apologies for providing providing information. That's what the people. Well, are that, you know, this for. is the difference in what we do. Otherwise, it would make no sense for us to charge so much for the guitar. <laughs> 
I mean, it really does come down to time, right? You know, it's one of those things I'm, I'm very big into the, uh, guitar pedals and effects. And one of, one of the things that's a reoccurring theme sometimes with people who think they know what they're talking about is, well, that's only $30 in parts. And it's <laughs> yeah, like, that's well, funny. <laughs> sure. That's really funny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, what do you got? You, that's only a few hundred dollars in wood. Why are you charging? That's so like much? eating the best, like, the oh. best dinner you've ever had, and say, how much could this have cost? And you know, flour and eggs and and toast to make this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is a weird thing. I think it happens more often with guitar pedals for some reason. I'm not sure why. Sure, people think it's a mechanical uh, assembly, and they could do it at home. Yes, and then they try it. And that, don't get me wrong. There's lots of guys that that do. Um, and, uh, and, and they are really good at it, but it's, um, it's definitely a, a weird thing to just assume. I can imagine. <laughs> but, um, so uh, electrics, what are your, uh, yeah. what is, what is your, your thoughts on those and how do the two parallel each other or. Well, I love, I love electric guitars. I love, um, I love the, some of the, uh, you know, early vintage stuff where people are just trying to figure out how to electrify a guitar. Uh, so are the, you know, hybrids between acoustic and, uh, electric. I love solid bodies because, you know, shoot, I'm a boy, uh, grew up in, uh, modern U.S. Of course I gotta love electric guitars. Right. I also love the classical and the mandolin. But as builders, we truly have a lifetime of work. Uh, in what we what we have done to the acoustic guitar and what we'll continue to do on this, and I and I feel that uh, if we were to make a solid body electric um, or a mandolin or whatever, it just it kind of dilutes our image and people don't see us for truly the specialists we are in the acoustic. Um, I think your question was really more: What do they have in common? Um, uh, yeah, with, what do they have uh, in know, common? And if you were to build one. What kind of considerations would it be? Well, our, our rule is everything we make, we want to be able to perform acoustically uh, uh, in the exceptional range. And then we can, you know, then we can pick it up. So we've done arch top guitars, uh, but to do a semi hollow body or something like that, not at this time for us, because again, we want the, the acoustic presence to speak first. So the things they have in common are function up to a point. Uh, because um, you can get you can get um, away with a lot of noise on an electric guitar that you can't get away with an acoustic that the pickup won't transfer, and on the acoustic guitar everything you know will come across as um, as audible. Um, the uh, uh, you know the choice of woods, the densities, and things like that um, uh, tone, and you know people. People sort of spend a lot of time talking about that in uh, uh, music writing. Uh, about the uh, particular tone and so forth of a guitar that would be based on, you know, how heavy is the neck, how heavy is the body. Um, and I think those things would have something to do with it for sure. Um, the, uh, when it gets into amplifying, I, I just, I'm not even going to start because I'm not an expert in that. That was, that was funny. Cause I, my ne next question was going to be an amplifier question. Cause like, yeah, it's, um, it's, in your opinion, what is the best way? Because, like, obviously, hearing a nice acoustic guitars like the ones you build is the best way to listen to them is just to sit in front of them and listen to them. Um, but that's obviously not an option in a you know in a stadium or a, a club or something like that. So yeah, what is if, the you, best, if you like the to move around, 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, God, thousand years ago, Arnie Lazarus, the, the guy that d- developed the FRAP, flat rec- response acoustic pickup, um, uh, said, uh, you know, if you want to authentically reproduce um, uh, an opera singer at a louder volume, uh, would you have him swallow a microphone? Uh, you know, of course not. It has to be something that represents the human voice uh, out in front of it, where where the audience hears it. And 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 a, and a guitar is not practical because we like to move around. Um, so playing with to, to a real good microphone is the answer. Since we can't do that, uh, then we go to the, you know, uh, the different ways to amplify the acoustic sound of the guitar. And if if I was um, um, I want LR bags to be uh, the cutting edge best all the time because I think they have uh, the best way of thinking. Uh, they have the best values. They treat people really, really well. And unfortunately, it's electronics. Every six months, something's going to be different and supersede that. <laughs> but they do a really, really good product. Um, for our customers looking for uh, something uh, functional, um, that does the job for them that's not finicky. You know, uh, I, I turned to Brad Paisley. Brad Paisley uses a, a K&K pickup um, both in recording and in uh, the studio. And the guy could buy all pickup companies combined if he wanted to, and he uses the least expensive, um, you know, pickup ins- installation to get the sound that he has. So uh, there's a lot of choices out there. Um, and what we're looking for is uh, backup that we that we uh, have a, a, a pickup that gives us a pretty good uh, uh, acoustic response and uh, people are on the road they're playing and they can get support out there and that's why I think so strongly of bags because we can we can have an artist anywhere in the world uh, with a problem uh, get it addressed you know in a short period of time we we mm-hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that he uh, used that um, in studio that as funny? well. That's that, well, that's what he said. I, 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 uh, uh, there may be music magazines that know better than me, but that's what he told. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, it's it's the age old problem. I don't really think there is anything out there that's going to uh, make your guitar sound just like it is, but louder. But I will tell you this from experience that the foundation uh, is is the key. The better the guitar responds acoustically, the better you're going to get a uh, response out of a, a acoustic pickup. What we do really. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Kind of like when, uh, Oh, I was going to say, it's kind of like when recording, try to get the best sound. Right. What we really you can do and is, then manipulate um, it after uh, that. You know, everything we don't make, uh, we design and have made for us like strings, tuning machines and cases. And we thought about that with pickups, but truly there's no one pickup right for every application. So what we really do is we don't uh, supply a pickup with our guitars. We have the customer uh, identify that and we'll put it in. So uh, uh, that's what we do with pickups. We'll ask people what their favorite is or we'll make a recommendation. So we probably use like four different companies in our pickups. Gotcha. Gotcha. This is all very, very interesting. So I want to talk about necks a little more. We talked about the fretboard and all that kind of stuff. What about just 
do you build the next more? Do you have like a system in place, or do you well, just kind of go off you know, what sometimes the players you can say they like? How do you what people how do you go say? Sometimes they don't know how to say what they want. Um, so we have a lot of neck choices. If somebody goes into a uh, you know a store that stocks thirty of our guitars, like Artisan in Franklin, Tennessee, or Sullivan here in Santa Cruz, uh, they can play a lot of different styles and necks, including some custom, and they can tell us what they like as far as the shape. And uh, and we can copy that. We can also copy somebody's old Les Paul, or uh, uh, in the case of Red Paisley, again, his his uh, dad gave him a thirty eight Martin that had so much wear on it, but he wanted that. He wanted that uh, that shape. So we do probably seventy percent of our. Uh, custom guitars we shape next to uh, the customer's preference. Uh, the other ones we have standard and we can cut a neck on a CNC. Unfortunately, in the case of uh, uh, Brad Paisley, the neck's so complicated, the CNC runtime is as long as it would take our master carver to do it by hand. Um, so the way we solve that is we do, uh, we do custom necks. So that's the shape. Um, uh, the string spacing, the shape of the neck, the scale length can all be done. Another thing is the neck will affect the presence of the guitar. And I bet this is true in electrics too. Uh, the heavier the neck, the more it blocks vibration from exiting the body and chimneying into the neck. So you get more projection, more separation of the notes uh, uh, out of the acoustic guitar if the neck is heavier. If the neck is lighter, uh, uh, vibration does chimney into the neck. It broadens the acoustic uh, resonant surface and you get a more open airy sound. So think of a singer-songwriter sitting on a stool with a 12-fret neck slotted pig head open back gears. Uh, that's really light and the guitar is going to be open and airy. And then think about the uh, uh, player in a, a jazz ensemble with a um, an arch top guitar with a maple neck, a huge peg head, and heavy gears. And that one really projects and cuts. So we can manipulate that weight um, uh, by uh, using a different density of wood, a different kind of wood, different shape, different gears, and so forth. The customer does not know to ask for that, but we know to use that as one of our tricks for manipulation. I see. They kind of describe the sound, and then you go, well, then we need to make this one with a... Yeah, right. Or I'm, I'm listening to what the context, what's, where are they playing, what are they playing, how are they playing, and I can, I can make that suggestion. Uh, the thing is, you know, most of the stuff we do, people don't have a vocabulary for. Uh, our job is to get them the right guitar uh, based on what we can see in here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Describing sound is always kind of hard, you know. <laughs> no kidding. Also, <laughs> also uh, people, people get intimidated. Uh, if you give them too many choices, they're going to go buy a tailor because it's easier. <laughs> Well, that's <laughs> that is very very true. I've seen that it's a peril, you know, paralysis by analysis. Yeah, that's situation. right. We're we're consumers. We know that one for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, the first time I had a guitar built. They were like, "What color do you want?" And it was like, "Oh, oh, wait, I can have it any color I want." Oh, yeah, boy. I have to, I'm gonna go home and lay down. <laughs> yeah, like I gotta, I can't make these kinds of life changing decisions. Oh, that's right now. funny. Um. And then by, you know, by a different token, one of the most enjoyable and, the, you know, you would only do this, of course, if you really trusted the, the luthier. But uh, one of the most enjoyable experiences I said was like, yeah, I want it with this scale length and uh, this body shape. And 
I like big necks and you just do the rest that, of it. That's, and that's whatever great. you come up with is. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it's yeah, like it Christmas is. then. So, you know, when we're building uh, a right guitar for somebody, uh, uh, my job would be they can they can show me they're playing what they do. I can recommend a wood that would fit for their tone or they'll come up with a wood they've heard of on the internet. It's my job to tell them what tone to expect on that. So, uh, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward. What's the weirdest material that, that people don't think of? Is it always wood or can you get some different materials sometimes that, that you actually like to use? Well, I am a huge proponent of, of man-made materials and cheaper guitars simply so we don't waste the resource. Um, you know, if you go to one of the big trade shows and you see guitars for $149 and they got a spruce top on that, please, you know, um, uh, uh, it's not necessary and not helpful. So, uh, you know, the modern materials like uh, the carbon graphite, in fact, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting a, a guitar for my uh, my kid. I have no idea if they're going to play for two days or two weeks or 20 years. What should I get? Um, the, the carbon graphite guitars are, uh, you can make them super playable. They won't change in playability and they're loud. Um, there's nothing complex or sophisticated about them, uh, but they're super, super durable. And that's great. Um, in, uh, uh, you know, the innovations in classical build now, uh, the Kevlar web, uh, or, uh, uh, where the, the luthier can make a one millimeter, uh, 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 piece of wood uh, sandwiching this Kevlar and make a really durable top with minimal bracing and so forth is also really exciting and uh, kind of production friendly. Um, all, all these things are great for uh, uh, value and getting the price down and serving a function. But remember, what we really want out of our guitar is inspiration. Uh, we want to be inspired to write a song to change the world or make somebody fall in love. And that comes from the complexity, the richness of overtones and sustain. So, you know, uh, any guitar that's boring sounding, you'll get bored with eventually. And that's, uh, that's where our service comes in. So we can't avail ourselves at this point of any uh, man-made stuff and expect to get the sophistication that we have. Maybe it'll come. Uh, I'm open-minded, but not yet. I see. I see. That's uh that's intriguing. I would I would be very curious to see what, you know, technology's a crazy thing. I wonder I wonder, I wonder Oh, it's we'll neat. You know, future, people don't but... uh oftentimes people mistake volume for quality and uh it's easy to make a really really loud guitar. Um, to make a guitar that, again, that's sophisticated sounding and uh gives pleasure to the player and the audiences. Is that's luthery. That's where the the time comes in. For sure. For sure. So did you learn most of this stuff on your own or did heck you, no. uh, who, who were some of your mentors and all heck, this stuff? Heck no. Uh, my, um, uh, uh, my, my, I've saved up for a Martin for a long time and unfortunately got stolen. And fortunately when I went to this, uh, storefront, um, loan place to, uh, get the money to buy an Epiphone Texan. Um, uh, the guy, the guy, the loan officer was a guitar maker and I had been trying and trying and trying to get some traction in guitar making. And this guy did it as a hobby. His name is Bruce McGuire and he passed away a couple of years ago and he was an angel. 
Uh, he was a classical builder. Uh, he let me come over to his house like once a week and uh, build a steel string and, and, and figure it out. And I am incredibly indebted to him. And uh, he's also one that when I asked him what I could do in return, he said, just show somebody else and don't ask for anything. And I, and I said, okay, and I do. That's why our company is open source, and I and you see me talking about guitars so much because I owe it to him. Uh, the the next one was uh, Jim Patterson. Jim wrote the first book on uh, Mother of Pearl inlay, and he was a hobbyist, and he was a steel string builder here in Santa Cruz. And I and I stumbled across him, and he he was the same way, you know, very very giving. Uh, uh, he he passed away at eighty eight, and he said the same thing. He said, "Just pass this on to other people." So you see why I'm stuck with that. <laughs> So those are my two uh, official mentors, and then my uh, education is still ongoing. I've luckily been to go, able to travel around the world for uh, buying wood and promotions, and I'm always stopping in to learn how to French polish or, or lutes or violins, so my education is still ongoing. What's uh, one of the most recent things that you learned about guitar making that was surprising to you? Wow. <sighs> I know we're asking the hard hitting questions. <laughs> you know, you know, there, 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 there's something that's, uh, I think is not too mundane or too, uh, uh, stupid here. Um, where, you know, you, you, with anything you do, uh, uh, there's some point where you go, I'll be darned. You know, I had no idea. Uh, oh, totally. we have, we have so much control over, uh, uh, what we do. We're never surprised when we're finished, uh, finished with the guitar. Um, uh, I'm, I'm racking my brain uh, about this. I'm always picking up, uh, you know, something uh, uh, daily for this. And most of the things that I've learned uh, recently are, are a little esoteric. One is um, I was in Hamburg and I was in a shop with a guy for a week and he was a loot maker and I was taking, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was learning how to do French polish with him. And he had uh, some uh, nicks in the maple, and he guts this little jar out and unscrews it and takes out this kind of um, wheat-colored powder and uh, mix it with hide glue and filled up uh, uh, this chip out in the maple and then came back and sanded it, and it was just invisible. And I said... What I said was that uh, maple dust, and he go, no, it's a it's a fungus, it's a mushroom, and uh, violin makers know about it, but it's a big secret. And I went, now that's hip. There's there's some there's something great. That is so cool. I got, I've got this, <laughs> and I have to translate the name, but it's a, yeah, it's a little it's mushroom dust that works awesome on uh, on. Uh, maple uh, to repair stuff because, you know, no matter how carefree we are, how good your intentions are, stuff happens. And part of being a great luthier is knowing how to cover your tracks. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So I, I like that. Uh, we also, you know, in our string research, man, was that enlightening. Uh, you know, sometimes you think that adults have really figured something out and there's no possible improvement that you could make to it. And you start looking into it and you go, well, humans are all the same. You get, you get so far, you want to go to market and you go. And, uh, one of the things I did with the strings is I asked all the manufacturers, if price was no object, you didn't have to worry about a price point. What would you do? And we got some really great information on that. 
uh, and that's what we wanted. It doesn't matter what it costs. We just want the best strings we can do. So there's there's going to be more out there. That's for sure. That's really interesting. Yeah. Is it, can you shed any light on that yet, or is that still? Uh, kind of yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the things uh, that was a byproduct of what we did, we weren't looking for something like longevity. I thought that was more of a marketing issue, how long your strings lasted. But what I found out is it's not the coding of strings uh, that are the biggest factor. It's the precision with which they're made. So it, it's pretty simple. If you really wound strings like jewelry uh, really tight and snug the tonal life will be a whole lot longer than one that was uh, 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 done at for a price target so it's done quicker uh, not quite as precision uh, but at a great price um, and so our it turns out our strings last like probably two and three times longer than most commercial strings and that was a really nice byproduct and the way we did it was instead of using that little um, I don't even know what it is. You know, the ball end on a string, you look at them, and they all come from the same place. I don't know if they're a byproduct of some other manufacturer or something, but you could probably get a boxcar load, you know, for a dollar and a half. And they're like a, a little aluminum uh, thing. And usually if you hold the string up, they'll actually rattle uh, in there. And what we want to do instead is machine a, a solid alloy uh, ball end that had a precision uh uh, machine groove in it so you could put the the string on it wrap it tight uh, and then do the wind on it and it was super snug and that along with the with the tolerance for the wrap of this of the wound strings just make them last like crazy we we, we didn't want to coat the strings because people have some yuck factor on coated strings it's uh, what it is it's they're exposed to an atmosphere uh, that's anti-corrosive so they don't really put add any weight to it but they don't rust Right, right. Well, and I've personally never been a big fan of the coated strings either from a feel or a sound thing. I've, I, 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 I'm kind of pessimistic on them a little bit. <laughs> I've always, I, I, most people are. For us, it was, uh, you know, when Elixir came out, it's like, oh, thank goodness, because we send a guitar to a store and one person plays it with the wrong skin chemistry and, you know, the guitar is unsaleable. Uh, and that helped. But we're really glad we came across this. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we're getting down to the last couple minutes of the uh, main episode here, and oh, now the dangerous stuff. Oh, this is uh, this is this is the <laughs> this is the make it or break it question. Yeah. Um, I hope you're sitting down for this because a lot of people, you know, and and choose your words carefully because uh, you're making this good. It's very controversial. Some people's answers. Yeah. So, um, what is Mr. Hoover's favorite kind of pizza? Pizza. Pizza. P-I-Z-Z-A? Yeah. Oh, you know man. It. Where are you calling from? <laughs> <laughs> Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. Not Chicago or New York, so I, I don't have to worry about that. Um, no, I do got a lot of listeners in both locations. So yeah, we do. That. We do. <laughs> um, what I'm going to tell you is uh, come to my house. Uh, between my wife and my Italian next door neighbor, I don't think there's anything Ooh. better on the planet. But that's not what you're asking. Uh, you're asking uh, the style of it. So what's the kind that has the uh, thinnest crust and relies mostly on the uh, other stuff for flavor? What style would that be? That seems like a, that seems like a kind of an Italian well, thing. New York's really thin, yeah, too. Yeah, thin. But uh, yeah, the crust I, is I, important. Yeah, not a fan at all of... Um, 
uh, uh, quantity over quality. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, skinny, skinny, um, skinny, crispy crust and, uh, uh, the good stuff and, uh, 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 Italian sausage and black olives. <laughs> that sounds like a good pizza. I think <laughs> that, yeah. you passed the test. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> I'm right on. I am too. That made me kind of hungry. Well, Blake, oh, come duh. see us sometime. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. If you go to the NAMM that's show. That's true. I uh, I am going to be coming to the NAMM show. Oh, that's great. Well, you're very welcome. Um, I'd love to walk you through and show you this firsthand. That would be fantastic. We'll uh, we'll make it a date then. Cool. Right on. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to uh, tell the listeners? This is uh, kind of your chance to throw up a billboard and say yeah. where what where can they find you? What what else do they need to know? Or just whatever you want to say. Well, yeah, matter. sure. There's there's two things here, and they're and they're personal. Uh, one is um, charity is something that you do when nobody's looking. Um, if you if you brag about it, it's marketing. Um, uh, and I felt the same way about using woods responsibly. You know, for my whole career. I've uh, I have a reverence for uh, you know the, the the nature of the woods and trees, and and so our our um, processes we only use responsibly harvested wood. And I used to think it was something that was personal. I shouldn't talk about it, but I had some people that are really involved in conservation and education say, "You idiot, tell people about it because it's important for this message. We can make the best stuff in the world." without compromise. We can get the best sounding wood without uh, participating in deforestation or cultural upheaval. And and we do that, uh, one of the secrets of the violin masters, we do that by using old wood. So our, our, our guitar tops uh, that are, uh, say, Sitka spruce from Alaska, probably average 75 to 150 years old. Um, uh, we use stuff all the way up to 3,000 years old. We get older wood, we get better sounding instruments and we don't have to cut a tree. Um, uh, we also get wood from uh, secondary sources, maybe an old inventory from a boat builder, guitar maker, um, down trees, sunken logs, and all that. And we're in f 42 years of this, that wood finds us. So we don't have to make an excuse about, well, we use such little wood, it's okay to use uh, something that comes from clear cutting or things like that. Uh, it's really people like us our responsibility to set the uh, uh, set the model for that 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 we use our resources responsibly and they'll be there for the uh, preceding generations that's great I I, uh, I think that's important because you know if we if we use all the wood then we won't be making any more guitars or anything else that's Oh, no kidding. Well, here, here's a fun thing. When we make a, you know, when we make a, uh, uh, we, we made a guitar for our 40th anniversary and the, uh, the back and sides came with sand mine in the Czech Republic and they were carbon dated at three, uh, no, 8,000 years old. Uh, the spruce top had been frozen in the permafrost in Alaska for 3,000 years. And that's totally impractical, but it was a great way to tell the story. That's awesome. Um, uh, Old wood sounds better, and it's a better thing all around. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> all right. Well, I feel like that's a pretty good way to wrap this section up, so I'll go ahead and, and do my outro. Thank you for that, Richard. Okay. Well, thank you. I also work with perfect people, and that makes it a whole lot easier to do. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. It's all about the people, isn't it? No kidding. 
Yeah, no kidding. It is. Blake, that was a good job. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so for Richard, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. And there you have it. If you need more of that conversation, obviously, you heard on the episode, patreon.com slash tonemob is the place to get it. And if you don't want any more of that conversation, then don't go there. And actually, as I record this bit, Jess is coming over tomorrow to record some more Patreon content. So there's always extra tone mobbery on the internet over at patreon.com slash tone mob. And I actually said it right this time, the first time. This is fantastic. I feel great about myself. Don't bring me down. Um, if you need anything else, you guys know where to find me on all the socials at the tone mob on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Honestly, thank you guys so much for listening. I can't tell you how much it means. I know I say that every week, but I say it because it's true. It's like flabbergasting to me that people are listening to this. So thank you so much. Please continue to do so. And if there's anybody you think would get a kick out of this or get any kind of, you know, anything out of this, please, please tell them about it. It's uh, it's here for you guys. And if nobody was listening, there would be absolutely no point in doing any of it. So Thank you again so much. If you need more, hit me up. And info at tonemob.com is the email for the show and for anything else Tone Mob related. Otherwise, you know where to find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams. I'm around. So thank you again, and I hope you have a fantastic week. And maybe, maybe you get yourself a new delay. That'd be great. Get yourself a new delay. You deserve it. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, Go to ToneMob.com slash StringJoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things. And by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com slash StringJoy and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got... Three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. 
So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.